you have your Bibles, why don't you open them up? We're going to be in the book of Nehemiah. As you're turning there, I want to share a story. On one evening in 1787, a young English member of parliament was poring over papers by candlelight in his home beside the House of Parliament. It was William Wilberforce who had been asked to propose the abolition of the slave trade, almost, uh, although almost all Englishmen through, um, thought that the slave trade, though, was necessary for business. If nasty, that even though it was taken away, they would be tragic for the country. Only a few thought that slave trade was wrong or evil. So at the age of 28, Wilberforce started a campaign against the slave trade, which at the time was legal and big business, worth 80% of the country's foreign income. He gathered evidence and allies, gave impassioned four-hour speeches, and presented his bill to Parliament. He would write, so enormous, so dreadful, so irremediable did the trade's wickedness appear that my own mind was completely made up for abolition. Let the consequences be what they would. I, from this time, determined that I would never rest until I had effected its abolition. God Almighty has set before me two great objects, the suppression of the slave trade and the reformation of manners, in modern terms, habits, attitudes, and morals. His first bill was presented to Parliament, and it failed by a two-to-one margin, and he felt deflated. Most of us might have quit, and nothing would have come of it. But Wilberforce tried again the next year, and it failed. He tried again the next year, and it failed. And he tried again the next year, and it failed. And on and on, you get the picture. He was determined, though, to see what God had called him to do and to see it through. And all the while, while he was beginning this, opposition grew and grew against him and this bill. The financial benefits of slavery to the traders in the British economy was so great that most people couldn't fathom how to live in a country without trading of slaves. He was constantly vilified, twice ambushed, and physically assaulted. He once criticized the credibility of a slave ship captain, Robert Norris, and the man was enraged and promised to end him. He would lose the majority of his friends and feared that his legacy would be forever tarnished. If Britain really outlawed slavery, the West Indian colony assemblies threatened to declare independence from Britain and to federate with the United States. A friend once wrote to him, I shall expect to read of your carbonadoed by West Indian planters. Carbonadoed means to to boil like a fish. And barbecued by African merchants and eaten by Guinea captains but do not be daunted, for I will write your epitaph. Wilberforce kept persevering, displaying courage and loyalty to those who were trapped in this wicked practice and his pursuit to abolish such an evil operation for financial gain. And after 20 years of effort, he tried yet again, and this time he succeeded. The slave trade was finally abolished. And so then he turned his sights to the practice of slavery itself, And after 26 more years, it also was abolished. That was 1833, three decades before it was outlawed in the U.S. It took Wilberforce 46 years of his career to see it abolished. 
and three days later he died. This man changed the fabric of his country and really the fabric of the world. He took on big business, the status quo, the law, and he won. And it resulted in 800,000 people being freed from a lifetime of slavery. But the opposition that he faced was great and almost crushed him. Opposition comes to those who are working against evil in this world. We shouldn't be surprised when we face opposition. Peter writes to us, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange was happening to you. This isn't new. It isn't strange for the Christian to experience opposition. It should be expected. And yet, as Christians, God will be faithful to his people. This morning, we're going to look at opposition in the book of Nehemiah in chapter 4 as they continue rebuilding the wall. And so here's the main idea. If you get anything from this morning, here's the, the main idea in one sentence. Opposition will come, but our invincible God is faithful to his people. Opposition will come, but our invincible God is faithful to his people. And there's four points as we walk through this. And I, I like having outlines. I think it's helpful for listeners to have outlines. They're kind of like mile markers down the path so we know where we're going. So first is opposition is unavoidable. Prayer is indispensable. Despair is understandable, and God is invincible. And we're in Nehemiah 4, so if you haven't turned there, please turn there. You'll be lost if you don't have a Bible open this morning. If you didn't bring a Bible, we have some in the chairs. And if you're unfamiliar looking at the Bible, it's on page 372. That's where it'll be, Nehemiah chapter 4. If you're unfamiliar, even look at the page. The big numbers are the chapter numbers, and the small numbers are the verse numbers. And we're going to look through Nehemiah chapter 4 this morning. So, number one, opposition is unavoidable. After spending for us as a church a month away from this book, we come back to see now how the rebuilding is happening for Nehemiah in Jerusalem. And so look at chapter 4, verse 1. Now, when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding, we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. It seems as though the people of God can't catch a break with these guys. Sam Ballot and his goons are back at it, harassing the people as they rebuild the walls. And we saw this earlier in the book of Nehemiah. God's people here are fighting for their continued spiritual existence, but these, these men are trying to squash them before the wall is fully realized. And what we will find in this chapter this morning is that blessings often come in affliction, and is rarely found in times of ease and comfort. We, we don't like this, but I need to tell you, friends, we will grow most as Christians when we suffer, when we face opposition. Opposition is almost always, though, caused by success and not failure. The people of God were making progress on the wall, and Sam Bell and his guys take notice again and fearful. If we're going to do something worthwhile for the glory of God, people will take notice and opposition will come. But why do people op oppose this? Why do people oppose success? Well, here's some thoughts. It might be because they're possibly losing some position or power. And, and this might be seen with Sam Ballad, who was the governor of Samaria, and no doubt he wanted to have Jerusalem continue to be a part of his jurisdiction. And, and Nehemiah coming to rebuild the wall threatened that. 
People also oppose because of jealousy. These, these men here that are stated uh, despise the Jews and were jealous of anyone who would come and help to restore them and, and build the walls for protection. People oppose because they have a different agenda than the leader. These, these men most definitely had a different agenda for God's people. It was to keep them under their thumb, to keep them uh, under their power, and, and to see the final destruction of God's people. People oppose sometimes because they feel excluded. Sanballat and Tobiah were not Jews, and they didn't want anyone helping them. People oppose because they're fundamentalists or traditionalists, and they want things to stay the way they have always been. Don't come and change things. After being in ministry for 20 years in the church, this is very common. Some of us like change, but when it happens to us, we don't like change much at all. And, and, and some of us in this church and other churches, religion has been, has been a comfortable thing that promises a lot and asks very little. And so we push against, we oppose those that want to come and change because that means we have to change. Last, though, and maybe you're thinking this, opposition comes because Satan is using his tools to oppose God's work. And what are his tools? Mainly people. One commentator said, though, to pause, he said, it would be easy to blame all of Nehemiah's difficulties on Satan's opposition, but it's too simplistic. Satan merely needed to exploit already existing concerns. Not everything is Satan's fault. If you've grown up in that thought or if you're even stuck in that thought, not, every, not everything can we blame on Satan. He uses the tools that have been given to him. And people oppose to change. People oppose to God. People oppose to see, seeing things move forward are prime tools for Satan to use. And the easiest way it seems to oppose something is to ridicule it. So look at verse 2. And he said in the presence of his brothers in the army of Samaria, this is Samballot talking, by the way, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, yes, what they are building. If a fox goes up on, the, on it, he will break down their stone wall. Ridicule is easy. The reason people ridicule those they oppose, aside from it being easy, is that most times it's demoralizing and frequently effective. Words of ridicule of those that oppose us can cut deep. Whoever said, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words may never hurt me, lied. It isn't true. Our words have power. And their opposing words here, their threats, have power, as we'll see. And unfortunately for the church today, most opposition that, that we will face in ministry and most ridicule doesn't come from the outside. It comes from the inside. It comes from the very people that make up the church. 
from the people who should want to see God's work increase. Well, friends, sour, uh, s- sorrow and pain are not pointless in our lives. Opposition isn't pointless if it drives us to God. It'll increase our dependence on Him, and it'll, it'll grow our understanding of and sensitivity to the needs of people around us. See, affliction and suffering and opposition is good when it comes to the proclamation of God and causes us then to rely on him and to become more like Jesus. We often forget in this world of Jesus' words to the disciples, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Jesus prepared us long ago that we should expect this in our life. And mature, growing believers prefer to learn from trouble than to bemoan it and escape it. And yet it's still not easy to suffer. Remember the passage that was read earlier by Pastor Chris, 1 Peter 5, verse 6, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he might exalt you casting all of your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. That is the call for us as Christians. But what do we do when we face opposition? What is our first reflex? Only you can answer that and and think through that. What is my first reflex when opposition comes, when suffering comes? And what does Nehemiah do? Well, we see later here in 4, but also down to verse 9, and we pray to our God and set a guard as protection against them day and night. So second, prayer is indispensable. See, Nehemiah's response to the enemy's assaults on him and his people was to turn to God. We saw this already as, as part of who Nehemiah was, right? In chapter 1, what, when he recognizes the trouble that his people is in, what does he do first before he goes to the king? He prays. He brings the need. And, and he prays for a long time, actually, many months. But what is our natural response when we see suffering, whether in our life or in others, or opposition? When we're aggrieved, is it, is it better... To, to just ignore it? Or is it better to, to pray honestly and to express our pain and our trouble and our suffering than, than to harbor resentment to those who are doing it? Look at verse 4 and we see Nehemiah's prayer. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt, and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall, this is verse 6, yeah, and and all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. What we learn from this short prayer is that opposition to the work was opposition to God, is what Nehemiah is saying. Sam Ballot and Tobiah probably don't fully realize what they're doing, what they're saying 
to Nehemiah and the people. They, they think that possibly the work that's happening, the rebuilding of the walls, is just the thought of Nehemiah, of this man, and yet we know that God was behind it all, as Nehemiah writes. God was the brain trust behind the rebuilding, and when these men oppose Nehemiah and the work, they're essentially opposing God. Psalm 2 begins with the psalmist speaking of the nations, the nations raging and plotting in vain and says of the one who is enthroned and his response is that he laughs at them. Psalm 2.4 uses the same Hebrew word to describe God's response to his enemies as the one used to describe Samballot and Tobiah jeering at God's people in the text. So God's, God's enemies mock and jeer And what we learn from Psalm 2 is God turns their behavior back on them, mocking and jeering at their futility. The Bible doesn't soft-pedal away from what God thinks of the wicked and their opposition to him. Listen to Psalm 5. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful men. And the Psalms gives us the blueprint for taking God's side and righteousness agree with God. Psalm 139, 21, I, do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do, not, do I not loathe those who rise against you? And so if you recognize, if you read this, this chapter before this week, this is a, really Nehemiah's imprecatory prayer, his psalm against the people, okay? And we might jump to a conclusion of Nehemiah and that, that this is probably not healthy. You know, didn't Jesus said to love our enemies? But we probably need to spend more time in the scriptures. Nehemiah is calling on God to conquer his enemies. And Nehemiah is, is crying out for vengeance, and he's crying out for justice. And we need to understand, to be sure, these are God's enemies more than they are Nehemiah's enemies. And so if our response is, is, is to always fight for ourselves and, and praying in a way that, that fights for our honor, then we're doing it wrong. We've misunderstood. Nehemiah, who does he represent? He represents God, essentially. And so his prayer here isn't about saving his own face, but it's a prayer about vengeance and justice for God's name, for his fame. And there's nothing wrong with praying for God to uphold justice among those who oppose him. I don't, I don't believe it's in conflict with Matthew 5 to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute you. It's not loving to want someone to continue in their evil against God. But it is loving to desire that God would deliver someone from their evil. But we need to also understand that Nehemiah's prayer here is descriptive but not prescriptive, meaning it's, it's describing what he prayed, but it doesn't say, thus you shall pray the same way. You know, Jesus, in, in, in the Gospels, and we see teased out later in the epistles, he was the ultimate example of what it means to face opposition and still strive to see the glory of God shine. Earlier in 1 Peter 2 says, for, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you examples so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, 
but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. See, Jesus was kicked out of his own hometown, interrogated by religious people, stalked by his enemies, had a traitor in his midst, abandoned by those closest to him, and ultimately he was framed for a crime that he didn't commit. And yet we find Jesus entrusting himself to the one who judges justly, praying in the garden, praying on the cross, entrusting himself to the one who is in complete control of his, over him and all things. And what we find is Jesus was submitted to God fully. Friend, if you're here this morning and, and you're not submitted to God in Christ, if you're not trusting his goodness and faithfulness, if you're not actively pursuing God's kingdom, instead pursuing your own agenda, then you have set yourself up as God's enemy. You are opposed to God and Jesus Christ. You are not like Nehemiah in this passage. You're not innocently mistreated and opposed. No, if we're God's enemy, we are Sanballat and Tobiah. We are his friends. We are opposed opponents to God. We are the ones that it would be right to say, do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight for they have provoked you to anger. But the good news is, friends, God doesn't leave it there. God chose to blot our sins out because of Christ's sacrifice on the cross. And the call for us is to repent of our sins and put our faith in Jesus who was hung on the cross and who prayed for our forgiveness and bore our sins and rose again on the third day, invincible over death. And because of that, we're made new. And now, friends, as Christians, God calls us to pick up our cross daily and follow him, even in the midst of opposition. That means every day following Jesus is an opportunity to deny ourselves and to serve others and to grow in godliness amid opposition and suffering. Every day is an opportunity for us as Christians to talk about the fact that God, who was opposed by us one day, took the punishment for our sins even though we didn't deserve it and died on the cross for us and gave us new life. Every day is a new day to spend time in prayer with the one who fully understands what opposition looks like. Just like William Wilberforce, for him, prayer was indispensable. Wilberforce would write in his journal, Lord, thou knowest that no strength, wisdom, or contrivance of human power can signify or relieve me. It is in thy power alone to deliver me. I fly to thee for succor and support. O Lord, let it come speedily. Give me proof of thy almighty power. I am in great troubles, insurmountable by me, but to thee slight and inconsiderable. Look upon me, O Lord, with compassion and mercy and restore me to rest, quietness and comfort in the world or in another by removing me hence into a state of peace and happiness. Amen. See, what we learn here with Nehemiah and with Wilberforce is prayer is not a convenient tool for removing life's problems, but a loving God's provision for coping with those problems. 
Have we been thinking about prayer all wrong? Prayer really is indispensable to the Christian life. Third, despair is understandable. You know, the realism of Scripture is captivating. The stories that are written in the Old Testament, this is why I love preaching the Old Testament, are there to teach us. Romans 15 says, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that, w- that through endurance and through encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. The, the Bible doesn't confront us with an idealistic picture of life. What, what if the story, what if, think about this, maybe, maybe you do this because you love those type of movies, but the, the, what if the, Nehemiah was 13 chapters filled of building the wall with zero problems and everything went smoothly, right? Everything, like, you know, he, he prayed and, and five minutes later the king says, hey, come in, I have an idea. You just go build the walls and he goes and he gets all the materials and there's zero opposition, There's chapters of them having picnics and enjoying the sunlight. And you just think, wow, this is amazing, right? No, because you get to the end of that book and think, this has nothing to do with my life because this is nothing like my life. Is your life like that? If so, please come find me. I want to find out your secret because that's not how our lives work. That story would not help us. It would discourage us because we don't live in that world. See, the matter-of-factness of Scripture is helpful for us because it shows that these people are just like us, normal people seeking to follow God, and they're in similar situations that we face today. Look at verse 7. But when Samballad and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they plotted all together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. Despair at this point for them is understandable, right? They're striving to work for God for his glory by rebuilding the walls for the city and they're getting opposition from those outside. And and now they're preparing for war, for fighting. And then verse 10, in Judah it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble. By ourselves we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, They will not know or see till we come along them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. And you can hear in their voices, in the words that are stated, right, the dread and despair. Ten times, it's meaning it's just this constant. We've got to get out of here. We've got to leave. They're coming to destroy us. And what they're listening to is the threats, the ridicule of their enemies, and they're taking that in more than the promises of God. See, the realism of Scripture is really helpful because they're a lot like us, right? It's been said in the history of the church that pessimism has always been a greater problem than atheism. When at the border of Canaan, the fearful travelers said they could not possibly enter the land. 
They thought only of their weakness and not God's strength. We learn it's always easier to begin a work for God than to see it completed. Perseverance is a rich and rare quality, especially when we feel physically tired and spent. And sometimes the discouragement can get the better of us. Discouragement can distort reality. That throws everything out of perspective. And what they need is to learn again, learn afresh to trust God. But trusting God doesn't mean that they don't do anything. Nehemiah leads his people to trust in God and to act. Verse 15, when our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, half of our servants worked on construction and half held spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and the officials and the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread and we are, and we are separated on the wall far from one another. In January of 1865, Charles Spurgeon, in hopes of growing his ministry, began a work that would outlast his time through a magazine called Sword and Trowel. Have you heard of that? The title of that monthly magazine was found and made because of this chapter in Nehemiah 4. When the builders build with one hand and hold weapons in another. The sovereignty of God is not an excuse for negligence or dereliction of duty whether that's prayer or evangelism or preaching or the need to engage in defensive and aggressive warfare. The point was made earlier, we must remember that the world, the flesh, and the devil will seek every opportunity to oppose all forms of spiritual vitality in attempts to build and strengthen the kingdom of God. And so we see them, them heeding the, the warning by Nehemiah to trust in God and yet to work. And verse 21, so we labored at the work. And half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at the time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that they may be a guard for us night and may labor by day. So neither I, nor my brothers, nor my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. They were prepared. And they were determined. Our encouragement here is that we, we are to flee from temptation. We are to fight the good fight. We are to set our minds on Christ. We are to be strong in the Lord. Despair is understandable, but when we find something worthwhile to build for the glory of God, we can expect, in fact, we should expect a thousand arguments that zap our zeal and passion, but we press on, we trust the Lord, and we continue the work. And how is it possible? How is it possible to have the strength to do this? It's my last point. It's recognizing that God is invincible. See, the people of God were very fearful and even depressed and discouraged. 
They saw and they heard the threats of the enemy. They were fearful for their lives and the lives of their families. But Nehemiah wouldn't let them sit in their fears. He speaks up in verse 14. He says, I looked and arose and said to the nobles and the officials and the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Nehemiah shares his faith. He stands up in a public assembly and urges the people to not be afraid and to remember the Lord. He could enter sympathetically into the fears of his people and he could also encourage them to believe in God by remembering God's sufficiency and his invincibility. Remember, Nehemiah's prayer from chapter 1, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. See, the Lord had promised to meet the needs of his people, however serious the threats of their enemies, and he would not go back on his word. God would be faithful to his word. Friend, do you, do you have this view of God that he's some emasculated old man with a long beard, shriveled up and barely being able to sit in a rocking chair. Nehemiah is calling to the retention, the remembrance that a Lord is great and awesome, a, a Lord God who dwells in unapproachable light. Our God is the God who thunders and reigns with power inimaginable. He is a fire and brimstone God and yet he's more loving than you and I can ever imagine. This is the God that they were called to remember. This is the God that we are called to remember. They're to remember the Lord and they're to fight. To fight for your brothers, fight for your sons, fight for your daughters, fight for your wives, fight for your homes. Don't just look out for yourself but fight for others. Why? Why is that important? Because I believe it's one of the ways that God displays his glory. God helps the world to know how great he is through his people, through the church, who are transformed through the power of the gospel. And we fight for people. We fight for our brothers and families and our homes We're fighting to make God's glory known in all the earth. And so here, it's very obvious what they're fighting for. The enemy is right there. But what would it look like for us here now to fight for our kids, to fight for our spouses? Fighting for your children means fighting to ensure that they will never forget a day when Jesus wasn't being invested into their souls. Your kid might be a great athlete, they might be a really good student, but if school and sports becomes the number one thing, make sure it doesn't move ahead of the church and fighting to learn more about God and worshiping him. What does it mean to fight for your spouse? It means fighting for your marriage. All marriages have horrible times when you don't feel like you love each other the way you should. And those are the times you need to fight. Not with each other. You fight for that date night. 
to talk and pray. You fight for regular physical intimacy. Sex. Even though there's kids. Just wanted to make sure you understood what I was talking about. You fight for the commitment you made to each other. You know, John Piper said years ago, how, how am I sure that I married the right person? And he said, look at your marriage license. <laughs> In the midst of it, it's hard. But you fight for that commitment. And all of this can't be done unless you first remember the Lord. You fight by letting the cross of Christ close the distance between you two. Don't just get in close proximity with each other. First, get in close proximity with the Lord. Because when you come into close proximity with the Lord, he begins to show you how you have failed and where you need to repent and heal your marriage. The more you remember the Lord and the more you dwell on what Christ has done for you, the more you will fight for your marriage. And God won't let you fight alone in these battles. Verse 20, in the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there, our God will fight for us. See, he won't let you fight alone. Our God is worthy of our trust, and he is invincible. When he says there in verse 20, our God will fight for us, it was not a sign that there was nothing for them to do. Sovereignty doesn't work like that. The promise of God's activity doesn't remove our responsibility to act and to trust in him. I'm a Calvinist. I believe that God saves people, but I'm a Christian and I have to preach the gospel. I do not just say God will just do it and I can just cruise this other way. Because I believe in the sovereignty of God, I go and I preach. And if you're here any amount of time, you recognize that I will share the gospel, Lord willing, every Sunday. So God's sovereignty doesn't mean we just step out of there and do nothing. I mean, this is the main point of Nehemiah's speech to the people. Were they going to trust the Lord when things got difficult? Were they willing to trust him? And were they willing to work? Where is your mind these days? Is your mind totally consumed with the pains and oppositions in your way? With the suffering that you're experiencing? Is your mind taken up constantly with the losses and struggles that consume your heart? 
Where is your mind? Isaiah 26.3 gives us encouragement. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. That's the call Nehemiah has for his people. That's the call he has for us, to trust in him and to remember the Lord. See, God is bigger than our opposition. God is bigger than our brokenness. God is bigger than our frustration. He's bigger than our past. He's bigger than our pain. He's bigger than death. He's bigger than the people who gossip about you. God's bigger about the people who wrote you off. God's bigger than the greatest loss that you've suffered. God's bigger than you. And so our encouragement is to stay focused on him and to trust him. Nehemiah and his people continued to build despite the verbal assault and the psychological pressure and physical danger and and discouragement and crippling fear and extreme danger. And they were enabled to continue, not because they gloried in just a robust faith, but because they trusted in an invincible God. And they realized that some things are worth suffering for. What things in your life are worth suffering for? And do those things line up with the Bible? Are you living for something greater than yourself? Are you willing to give your life for that which will bring the most glory to God? You know, that's the example that we see in Wilberforce at the beginning. That's what we see in Nehemiah. But what about us, friends? Are we ready to suffer? Ready to meet the opposition with the Lord's help for his glory alone? Remember the main idea, opposition will come, but our invincible God is faithful to his people. Let's pray. Father, we know very well this morning that we are weak, and we can be easily distracted by this world and the concerns of living here. And yet, by your grace this morning, you brought us here gathered as a congregation to sit under your word. And I pray, Father, that your people would listen to your word. I pray that they would ignore all the things that I said that would be distracting. And I pray that you would be honored and glorified in all of our lives. And may the minutes and hours that you give us in the remaining portion of our life be spent for you, God. Help us to trust you more this week. Help us to love you with our lives, knowing that you hold us, that you keep us, that you're fighting in our behalf, and that you're worthy of trust. Help us, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen.